Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 277, and today's guest is Kevin Frechette, co-founder and CEO of Fair Market. So who are the tech companies in the Boston tech scene that are going to scale and become the next anchor companies like a Rapid7, CarGurus, Amwell, or like a DraftKings? Well, if I was pulling together a list of companies, I would definitely add Fair Market to the short list. The company is revolutionizing the way organizations buy and sell through automated sourcing. It is a massive market in a sector that has been vastly underserved in terms of leveraging technological advancements like AI. Plus, regardless of economic conditions, procurement teams are always going to be looking for ways to reduce expenses and automate business processes. Fair Market recently announced a $35.6 million Series C round of funding led by Omer's Growth Equity with participation from GGV Capital, Insight Partners, Highland Capital Partners, and ServiceNow. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on taking that entrepreneurial risk of starting a company, the beginning of Kevin's professional journey, and how sales helped propel his career at tech companies like EMC and Turbonomic, the full story of Fair Market from the very early days of an idea to where it is today, the benefits of having an executive coach, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you need to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind with our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Keith. I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about Fair Market, which is one of the companies in the Boston tech scene that's just absolutely growing at very, very rapid rates. It's one of what I see. It's, um, you know, you go through different uh, errors in the Boston tech scene, and there's these crop of what are hopefully future anchor tech companies. And I definitely consider Fair Market one of those companies that are on a trajectory to be this long-standing pillar company for you know the duration of time, hopefully. But um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about your background, and we're going to talk about your experience prior and the things that you've done, but I think a lot of people struggle with taking the leap of faith into entrepreneurship. Lots of people have ideas. But the actual risk of starting a company is a whole different ballgame. So what, what, what was your thought process before doing that? And then actually, what advice would you give to others that are thinking about taking that leap of faith? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, I kind of break it down two different uh, pillars where one is assessing what the actual risk is. And, and is it a calculated risk? Because... Um, <clears throat> A lot of times I mean, you do the same thing in business, like is the decision reversible or irreversible? Uh, if it's reversible, then you calculate, okay, what's the potential impact of it? Should we take this risk? If it's irreversible, then that's a much bigger decision that you can't you can't reverse it. So when uh, when I thought about starting the company, it was like, why not? Why not take the risk? What happens if it does fail? What happens if we don't get traction six to 12 months? It didn't seem that bad. No, it was kind of like, okay, I'll go back into another sales role that I was doing for the last six or seven years. Um, probably not take a step back. I wouldn't take a step back in my career at all. So it would potentially be like a six to 12 month gap that I'd have that I'd probably be able to gain a ton of experience, meet a lot of really cool people, develop some different skill sets I didn't have before. So to me, it 
the risk wasn't too high. The, I mean, the, the real risk for a lot of people, and for me as well, it's the financial risk. So the fact that when you start a company, you don't get paid. <clears throat> uh, you, you kinda, you're you making a bet on yourself with the team members you're starting with. Uh, and that kind of goes into the second pillar, which I mean, I think it's absolutely key for anyone. It, it's all about the people you surround yourself with. Because if you're surrounded by people that, that that seems way too crazy to leave your job and go start something else, or like this is, you're ruining your life by making this decision, then yeah, you're not going to do it. Uh, because that's the other voices you have on the on the kind of the other side. If you have people that are like, they believe in you, they support you, no matter what, um, then it makes it so much easier. So for me, I had my wife, Rachel, uh, who, who luckily does come from like the tech venture world as well. So she's seen different startups, worked with her at the last company, Turbonomic. So she understands kind of essentially like the, the, the big picture when it comes to like taking a risk like this. Also just like super supportive in general. I try to be for her and everything that she does. So like, that's the first thing. And also like she's impacted as well from a financial perspective where she is absolutely the breadwinner and was for like, like a massive contributor. Uh, and then the other side is typically your friends and family where, where um, like my dad was very much kind of always had that, like I had the tiger of like, yeah, like, go for it. Why not? But it was kind of like that, that, you know, it's a tough challenge, but why not attack it? And the same thing from our friends around me. So it really wasn't that hard of a decision to do it. It was more, what's the right time to do it. So that that's kind of what a lot of different factors went into starting when we did. Yeah, no, that's great, great advice. And I completely agree with all those different points. And I'm fortunate as well. My wife, you know, she, her background is in recruiting. So we met at the same recruiting firm. And when I went off to start my own search firm, she knew kind of what that was going to entail and the hours it was going to require. And then when I went off to do venture fizz, it was like that same level of support. So it's lucky that you have that as well. My wife's also in recruiting. <clears throat> There's a lot of parallels. Here. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely recruiting is a job that never sleeps. You got to be always on. So as an entrepreneur, that's typically the the crossover too. So it's very an understanding mindset of when you're doing things late at night and juggling responsibilities with your family time. So, well, let, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Um, grew up in Holden, Mass. So that's uh, Central Mass. Went to what? Uh If you're from Boston, you think that's Nebraska. If you're from Holden, it's like the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, growing up as a child, it, pretty stereotypical, just like running around, like biking through the woods, taking a lot of crashes, got stitches a bunch, uh, low playing sports at all times. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say anything like out of the ordinary, like got really wrapped up in little league baseball and like the, the, the high school sports just like had a blast. Um, and, and we had a big family. So the family of five kids, I was in the middle of five. So it's kind of cool where at any given time, there's always one or two siblings in school with me or playing on sports teams. Um, so overall, great kind of childhood. Um, definitely some things that shape kind of like where I'm at today, what we're doing as a company. But um, yeah, overall, great time. So now it all makes sense of why you're an entrepreneur. You're the middle child. You had to you had to fight. You had to fight for the older siblings and the younger siblings. So you, you had your lane of having to fight. <laughs> Fight for the attention or actually fight them where I feel like we, and it was all right. a playful fight. But my older brother is like in the military, like that, that's tough. My younger brother is 6'3 and was 270 pounds in high school. So that's tough too. Oh, so, yeah, man. A lot of wrestling matches growing up. <laughs> now your dad was in sales. You mentioned your dad before. Yeah. So um, yeah, always been in a sales role. He's, uh, I mean, and I've talked about it before, but one of the biggest driving factors and kind of how I approach every day and the mentality I have towards just like taking risks and towards just like 
believing that if you work hard and you really kind of set your sights on a tough goal, like it's going to be hard, but if you have fun with it and you achieve it and you can keep growing on it, like that's, that's the fun of building a career. Um, also like a, a big piece that he's instilled in all of us is just like, like getting going early, starting the day. Like I remember growing up, we, uh, we used to always like, we, we had a beach house, uh, down in Connecticut. Um, it was my grandparents. So we always go, you go out, you run around with the kids at night, have fun. And then at like four 30 in the morning, he would wake us up being like time to go fishing or time to start our day. And his, his motto is always don't run with the turkeys at night. If you can't run with the Eagles in the morning, meaning like, yes, it's fun to have fun at the same time. You want to be an eagle you got to be able to prep like an eagle and get ready for the day like an eagle that's always been a, a fun mentality that i've taken with me throughout my career i love that that is something i'm probably going to steal that is a great great line all right so you studied finance at umass amherst what led you down the path of, of pursuing that um well growing up at first i i want to be a naval pilot i think probably like most people that saw top gun about 100 times no when i say growing up that was like elementary school i had no idea what that meant um so I, that kind of very quickly changed middle school. Thought thought I wanted to be a broker on Wall Street. I think like a lot of people, like you kind of get wrapped Me up too. the side of it. Like you, and then um, so I knew I wanted to get into finance. <clears throat> I went to apply for all the internships at the big banks when I was like a freshman sophomore. Uh, UMass now is an incredible school. Like the Eisenberg School of Management, awesome. The Entrepreneurship School led by Gregory Thomas, awesome. At the time, it was still a great school, but it wasn't, if you had a drop down of like a hundred schools for like the internships, uh, it wasn't on the list. So didn't get that, uh, knew I still wanted to pursue finance, didn't know what type of finance or what that was going to turn into. Um, so I was lucky to end up at UMass where it, it was not only like a very economical decision, uh, but at the same time, it kind of opened my eyes up to, um, I can be a little more well-rounded, I think. From like a school perspective because it is so big and because you have so many different walks of life so it was uh it was love the time there still try to be very involved with the entrepreneurship school there just to help out some of like the the people that are just starting their companies while in college it's kind of fun to to go start their journey with them uh and looking forward to working with them more as we keep scaling so how did you get your career started um well early career uh in high school uh set up uh irrigation systems so worked uh, locally in town. So that was, that was a fun time. We're going to work with my best friends uh, next to construction. And um, <clears throat> like some of the parts of construction would be like putting in septic systems, which everyone says like, that's disgusting. And it's like, it was a new septic system. There were like, it wasn't like it was a use. So we did right. that and realized, you know what? Like that's when I knew I wanted to get into finance. Um, so I actually started at EMC and I was a finance intern <clears throat> um, and I did asset tagging for a whole summer. Which, which like is valuable. You have to go into the data center. You have to depreciate your assets over time. So I was literally scanning barcodes on like thousands of servers, which wow. ended up, uh, it wasn't the exact kind of like high flying finance that I thought when I was thinking finance originally. <laughs> uh, and then after a summer of that, um, got introduced to the sales team. So I did an internship in the sales side. Um, so did a lot of like prospecting, a lot of cold calling. Found out that I just love that. So um, at, at the end of my junior year, I uh, decided that and signed on to go to EMC after. Uh, and that's kind of got me into the sales, like the tech sales world, um, which I've kind of been ever since. Yeah. So talk about that experience because you were at EMC, then you joined Turbonomic, which probably a lot of people listening to this podcast remember Turbonomic, which was a great company in the Boston tech scene that ended up getting acquired. Um, you know, you don't graduate with a sales degree, yet you had the opportunity to experience that while you were in college. So talk about how you were able to be successful in that type of role and 
how that helped shape you in terms of what you do today. Yeah, I mean, from a from a sales perspective, um, like there, there's certain things that you can take into any role. So like the the idea of like the camaraderie and building a culture, uh, like the competitive aspect. But I'd say the biggest one that I even took into what I do today is in any sales role, it's not everyone thinks of sales as you're pitching, you're pitching. In reality, sales is being curious. It's listening, trying to understand what is a customer pain, challenge, or problem? How does that tie to business initiatives they care about? And then does the solution that you have align with that? And then how do you make sure you can tell the story of how it lines, create a sense of urgency, uh, and then help them like actually deploy it to get the value? So uh, from a sales perspective, it's not like a, there's different types of sales. I think they're all hard and they're all valuable. That being said, when you're talking about enterprise tech sales, you're very much like it's the consultant mentality where you're trying to help people solve problems. And I think that's, I, I saw that very much at EMC uh, and then going over to Turbonomic, which um, like that move, I knew it kind of felt at the time, it felt like a huge risk. Looking back, it wasn't a huge risk, but it felt like a massive risk. I was going from a 40,000 person company to at the time, it's like a 200 person company. Um, got the the great sales pitch by Ben and I and my wife. Actually, we were downstairs at a restaurant. My wife was already working there as a recruiter. She said, hey, you should meet Ben. Uh, I thought about going over there for a little bit. They sat on the same side of the table on the other side of me. And Ben was selling me on, on Turbonomic. And then my wife leans in and says, yeah, why wouldn't you come? So I was getting the hard <laughs> sell for my wife. It right. worked. I, uh, but then, He's like, a very I, convincing guy. He was on our podcast. I don't know how many episodes ago, but he's he's obviously as as great of a recruiter as there is. Oh, beyond. So, but, but then when I got there, um, got to learn a lot more about like the sales mentality for a company that wasn't the the incumbent, the go-to, where I worked at EMC, where everyone knew EMC. Then you work at Turbonomic and, and you're kind of doing the challenger sale. You're you're challenging status quo and you have to really establish yourself, establish the problem um, and how you're different. So learned a ton there. There's some really, really cool people, not just people at Fair Market, where we have a bunch of people that were from Turbonomic now at Fair Market, but other sales leaders like J.R. Butler. I'm going to give a shout out to him. He's uh, running a company called The Shift Group right now. Uh, helps out with recruiting um, athletes into tech sales roles. But just people that you knew um, were lights out there, but were also going to do great things in their career. And I could list about 10 people like that from Turbonomic. Uh, so it was just a really cool experience. And like understanding into that like uh, venture back startup uh, world, which we've taken a ton in terms of just how to look at things from a KPI perspective, a metric driven organization. Um, so yeah, learned a ton. Super thankful for my time there. That's an interesting business that you mentioned that your friend is doing because that's something as a recruiter, if you saw like a D1 athlete on the background of a resume, you were like, oh, this person's golden because <laughs> if they can do that and handle the rigors of a D1 schedule, uh, they're probably going to do really well in sales or whatever they choose to do professionally. So that is uh, a, a good business. If you're listening, look up the shift group and JR Butler. Yeah. So I'm giving the shout out. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's talk about fair market. So how did you meet your co-founders? How did the idea come to fruition? Like what was the whole process there of just even coming up with this, uh, this idea for a company? Yeah. Um, so met the Two co-founders, Tarek and Victor. Uh, Tarek, I worked with at Turbonomic. He ran one of the sales development teams. I ran one of the uh, AE teams. Um, the uh, The original idea was came far before that, years before, where I, I just thought it was nuts that two companies would pay a different price for the exact same thing. Uh, and it just like to me, that just blew my mind. Where it it was mainly in the B two B space and the enterprise B two B space and, and tech specifically. Where if you look at like people buying homes, people buying cars, you have all this visibility 
into how much things cost. What other people are paying for Kelly Blue Book, True Car, Zillow. You can name a thousand different sites. It's like a power of the people startup where you're giving information to people to make big decisions. But in the B2B tech world, that just didn't exist. That visibility wasn't there. And I thought that's nuts. And I knew that would be kind of like flipping things upside down a little bit because that, like, that's how it's created today. That's the whole motion. Um, I, I kind of thought about it like five, six years before. Didn't make sense to start it. I referenced earlier, when's the right time? It wasn't the right time. Uh, like from a financial perspective, from a life perspective, even from my, my skill sets, like I just, I wasn't ready to do it. Um, and then I just like happened to meet Tarek who had a similar idea around transparency for the end user, but in a different space overall, it was logistics where he came from. Um, and, and we just, we kind of just made the leap of faith together that we were, we were, we're kind of both kind of looking to do something like take, take a risk, like, like challenge ourselves, go after a big problem, not knowing where to go. Um, and we, we made that jump. It was uh, early 2017. And we just knew right away, like you, you, it's very beneficial to have a technical co-founder when you're creating a tech company. Uh, like that, that's like the most obvious advice probably ever. But one of the most challenging parts of it to find the technical co-founder. So how did you meet Victor? Yeah, it's hard to find co-founders in general. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that try to find solid co-founders. So I feel very, very, very fortunate. Uh, we met Victor. We, we Tarek actually put out um, like, like ads essentially on like 20 or 30 different sites trying to find a CTO. We uh, interviewed probably like 40 people. We met Victor and we, we actually decided Victor was the right fit because when we met him, it wasn't like a job interview of like, oh, do you want to be a CTO? He approached it much more of like, how can we, like, what's the problem we're solving? How, like, why is it interesting? He just immediately flipped the switch of, okay, like, let's actually bake this out and let's be on the same side of the table together, trying to think about where this could go. Less of I'm interviewing for a job. <clears throat> so we just knew, it was about a month in, but we knew right away, like, this is the third co-founder. Um, and we're all very different, different styles different approaches, like different skill sets, but we complement each other very well, which has made it that we work together for five and a half years. And, and I see us working together for the next five, six plus years. So it's been a great, great experience. So just the, something I was thinking about when you were talking about the original concept and idea of that Kelly Blue Book type of analogy. So was this when you were like originally thinking of this, you were in a sales role and you were like pitching two different companies with different pricing, even though you're like, why am I pitching different pricing just because this company can afford more or what it like, is that kind of as a salesperson, you saw that and you were like, this doesn't make sense. The complexity of enterprise sales in terms of like registration pricing for different distributors, for different uh, partners. Uh, yeah. Like, like the different levels of discounting at these large companies and the rigidness of different tiers that go down. It just right. blew my mind. Yeah. And I was like, there's no way that this is, this is like, um, there's no way that this is in the best interest of everyone. Um, and it, it wasn't on, it's not unethical. Like that's not what I mean at all. It's just, it's a problem that probably can be solved. And it's a problem that can be addressed and it wasn't being addressed. So that's where we thought, you know what, let's give it a go. And then eventually you ended up evolving to procurement. So how did that transition? Like how did, you know, you started down this one path, but then you ended up going down a different path. Yeah, so um, I mean, it, there's a lot of people that were pitching in to help. Uh, so, so we had like right off the bat, we, we had this idea to like do a Kelly blue book or true car for it software pricing. Um, we like scraped together this platform. Uh, that was more like, it was like definition of a, like a, a V one of an MVP. Uh, we sure. did get like five, we did get five customers. We got five people to pay $50 a month, which was exciting. Uh, getting like, and these were big company from what I gathered, it was like Best Buy, Welch's. These weren't yeah. like just, 
Oh, Mom and Pop, they're like, sure, Kevin, we'll sign on with you. They, these are legit companies. It would cost a thousand dollars to sign up as a, a sign us up as a supplier, and then there's a fifty dollar a month contract. So it, it was it was people making a bet on us, uh, and, and we got to to start working though with some like like getting some early wins, even if it's fifty dollar a month. Uh, we got to work with some cool advisors like Eric Keegan, who uh, UMass grad, uh, very involved with Eisenberg, um, former entrepreneur. He like started to help to like advise us in terms of okay, how do we think about like where this actually goes, how this becomes a repeatable business. Brian Denenberg. Um, who has like a great sales background of how do you actually create a sales strategy and model from like the beginning? Cause we knew it from beyond Joel shorts was at EMC for a while. Uh, actually, he was a chief, the former head of procurement at EMC, just like uh, really cool people that like previously we wouldn't have access to and they wouldn't spend time with us. Not in a bad way. It's just like, because we weren't at the stage where it makes sense because we had some initial customers, it did make sense for people like that to lean in. And then that's what really kind of helped us like think about, okay, what's the problem? How big is it? And as we did that, what we realized was we can't have tunnel vision around our initial idea. We can't just say, this is it. And this is going to grow to be a multi-billion dollar industry changing company. Instead, we took the approach of let's just be curious every time we jump into a, to a call or every time we do an onsite, what's the, what are the problems that people have? How big is the problem? How do they quantify the problem? How are they addressing it? What technologies are out there? And that's what like across hundreds of meetings, kind of backed our way into this idea and the space that procurement is beyond legacy and archaic. Companies spend $8.3 trillion a year, but the solutions in the space are just like they digitalized in the 70s and 80s, but they're still very process oriented and manual. So we thought kind of a, a ripe space for disruption, one that's a massive market, unsexy market, and there's very few newer players in it. So that's where we kind of like started to dig more into procurement and we ended up signing up our first customer. It was a very, very large success. And then that springboarded us on uh, to keep going into the space. Yeah, I, I can't say I'm an expert on the world of procurement and technology and how it's evolved. But I think what I remember, the last wave of innovation was in the late 90s with companies like Ariba that I think was acquired by SAP. So companies are probably using technology from the late 90s still to do things that probably are way more efficient doing it in a different way. And you get stuck on them. So once you bring in a solution yeah. like that, and not like we're great partners with all those bigger ones, but once you get on a solution uh, and it's like you're a system of record and you're a 50,000 person company, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to move off. Sure. And so that you kind of like, you're just like stuck with them from there on out. And there's some new players in the space with new being relatively 15, 20 years old now, like, like the Coopers of the world. That's like the cloud first version, great technology, but still like, <laughs> Once you put something in and it's that hard to put in, that hard to switch out, you're kind of going to become a prisoner in some aspects. So that's where we just saw it as a really cool opportunity where we don't, we can start working with some very large organizations. You don't have to rip and replace out their older technology, but you're complementing it. You're integrating into their process. You're driving more business value. We thought that's a really cool tro Trojan horse to be able to get in. And then over time you can expand. Uh, so that, that's kind of been our overall thesis to the procurement space and the overall B2B marketplace is get in, prove value. And then over time, as you show that value, you can expand up and out um, with the Trojan horse approach. So from what I gather, you're, you're solving this problem in a world of tailspin. So what is tailspin? Great question. No, I'm sure most people have no idea what that is. They're listening. Uh, essentially, any big company, feels um, like British Petroleum is one of our customers. Uh, they have purchases over a certain size, maybe 5 million. That's their strategic spend. And that's where you have your procurement staff on, you do RFPs, competitive sourcing, really dig in. Um, but 
the company, the size company BP is, they have so many transactions that fall underneath that threshold where your team gets engaged. So underneath 5 million or 1 million. Uh, it could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of transactions, and it's billions of dollars to spend. That in the current state today, um, what happens is that you have an end user that puts a request in, say from the oil rig, pulling oil out of the grounds for BP, that goes into a procurement solution. Either it gets pushed to an end user who then looks at it, makes phone calls, send emails for every single purchase, organizes bids manually, then decides who to award to, then goes back into the system, keys in and updates it, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times a year. It's mind-blowing. All the data is lost, disaggregated. You can't learn from it. It's not automated anyway. Or you don't do anything. So for it could be for um, IT, it could be for major parent operations, facilities, whatever it is. You just say, you know what? We don't have the time to look at it. Let's just process it. Tons of risk there from who you're working with. Are you getting the best price? Is it the best lead time? It's just this space that we saw, and it makes sense. It's overwhelming. It's beyond human scale to put humans on and use outdated legacy technology. So what we did is we said, you know what? Let's start to apply some new age tech. <clears throat> Let's integrate into these procurement solutions so it, we can make it very simple and intuitive for the process. Let's apply some, to start pretty basic ML and AI to say, what are they trying to purchase? What suppliers can actually bid on it from their marketplace, suppliers in our marketplace? Can we automatically compete those against each other to get market pricing and then allow them to actually award that back into their system? So to create like an AI buyer that can now handle all this spend at scale. So it's the whole idea of, it's called autonomous sourcing. So it's the idea of kind of removing humans from the equation, bringing in tech, but now what you're doing is you have the ability to decide, what are we trying to optimize for this spend? Are we trying to push more spend to diverse sustainable spires? Is it only cost savings because it's an inflationary period? Is it lead times? Because we have continuity issues from a supply chain perspective. So now executives have the ability to control and optimize that spend, which previously they couldn't do. So it's saving them a ton of time and a ton of money, like ultimately, if you whittle it down. I mean, that's why... Um, I mean, we just got ranked 159 on the Inc. 5000. Um, we've got top 10 most innovative uh, companies for the enterprise. Um, we've been able to achieve a lot of this because even given the market craziness over the last two and a half years, people are looking to save money. People are looking to kind of augment people with software. People are looking to drive more spent to diverse and sustainable suppliers. So we have had a tailwind uh, given the market conditions. Um, and I think they'll keep changing over time, but we, we've been fortunate where we've been well positioned for this market. And you've raised capital at a very steady clip. So talk about you know going to market with you know raising capital from VCs and your most recent you know Series C round of funding. Yeah, so we um a lot of companies they, they view uh, like capital raises like oh it's a company milestone. Where for us the milestones are error milestones, customer milestones. It's hiring great people milestones. So I'll kind of touch on that in a little bit. Um, in terms of the the capital, yeah, we we have been fortunate to be in strong positions where, and also to, to bring in awesome investors, where for our series C, um, we've talked about a couple of times in podcasts, but like it's, it was a slugfest. Like we, we did all the angel groups. We did, we did everything. We had people fall asleep on us and pitches. Like we went through it. I think like every company has to, it's like a rite of passage before you really have the metrics. Uh, but then what we were fortunate is we got like investors like Henry from uh, new fund, uh, awesome, like us and, and, and uh, French based fund, super helpful to this day. Still meet with them once a month. We have Aaron and Rami from 1984, uh, just like really smart product investors that have helped us kind of come up with our product strategy over time. We have Nick uh, Moran from Newstack, uh, like kind of a Midwest investor, Chicago, uh, just been really cool in terms of actually helping us with future fundraises. And then here in Boston, Mass Ventures, Charlie Hipwood. So like what we realize is that 
the quality investor that you pick up, it's, I think it's less about the actual brand name of the fund. Those are all great brands. It's the individuals that you pick up to become part of the team. Because then that led us to our A with Insight and Thomas Crane, who have been incredible matches with our go-to-market mentality, our like metric-driven. Then our B, we are fortunate to bring in GGV, Jeff Richards, Tiffany Locke, that whole team. Uh, we're just go-long mentality. So we have like the East Coast, where like we were originally from, now we're all over the place. And like the Insight, so now we have the West Coast GGV, who's very much an international fund, have all the resources to help us out. And they're thinking about how do you become a $50 billion company and change the market to most recently, super fortunate to bring in Omers uh, out of Canada and then Highland Capital out of Boston. So we are able to bring in investors that Omers is very much um, long, like very long term. Also, their LPs are, it's the pension funds in Canada. So in terms of like growing value for them, you're growing it for like teachers, like, like city workers, people like that, which we thought was pretty cool. Where it's it's like as we grow fair market, that's some of the beneficiaries. And then Highland has always been a powerhouse investor in Turbodomic, a team that we just mesh very well with. So for us, it once again, it's less about like the name. We we work with awesome funds, tier one funds. It's more about the individuals that we work with, like the Craig Driscolls at Highland, the Warders at Omers, that that's building the fair market community. And I think I, like that's why we're going to be successful in the future. It's all about the people that are involved. Yeah, no, it's definitely, you know, the common theme of what um, we're learning here is you surround yourself with lots of brilliant minds, whether it's, you know, figuring out sales and all the people you mentioned to the investors. Now, as far as the company today, like how many employees do you have and what are the plans ahead? Yeah, so we're right now, we're about 130 employees. <clears throat> um, and, and, and when you think about the employee base, it, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's fun where if you think about like, what was important for early employees, uh, it was the grit mentality of like Mike Medcalf, who we brought in as our first sales rep, then came sales manager, sales director, runs our alliances team, just like grittiness. Erin McFarland, who we brought in as head of strategy and execution, which what does that mean? But she just happened to be an A++ that now has done so many things at Fair Market. We pulled over people from our last company, like Mari uh, O'Leary, uh, Andrew Hanlon. It's just been like a fun to think like, okay, the people we brought in, the impact they've had, to more recently, we've hired great people along the way, like Kristen, who runs our supplierman team with Jules, uh, who we brought on just recently. Um, Celeste, our new CFO, we just did a podcast with her. Just like different people along the way have made this like a really fun, cool journey. And when I think about what's next, that those are the people we're relying on to say, like, how do we how do we drive this organization forward? We brought in Kevin Turner, who's formerly of Coupa and Trade Shift. And a big push that we're focused on right now is just how do we keep driving more value for our customers? Because uh, realistically, that's how you build an enterprise SaaS company. It's not about, can you go hit that sales metric? Or can you do that like that shiny thing that people want to talk about in the market? It's, can you sign up customers? But more importantly, do they grow with you? Are they adopting your technology? And are they getting more value over time? Because then that leads to your net retention numbers, your NRR, which if you look at the public markets right now, which is completely a different story, but even the companies that are holding their value are the snowflakes of the world, the companies like the Datadog that are at the 150, 170 NRRs. And that's because they just delight their customers and they keep providing more value. So as we think about where fair market's going, it's it's all based around that. So it's based around how do we help people get more value out of our current functionality? And then what complements can we add to that that continue to push that envelope? So for us, that's helping to get more into sourcing more services to sourcing more strategic spend. It's getting to the end user to make it a better experience. On the supplier side, because we are a marketplace, it's how do you deliver more automation to them? They're kind of a forgotten about piece in the procurement space where everyone tries to 
work with buyers because that's a lot of times who they're selling to, but it's a marketplace. So these enterprise suppliers need the same level of tech to make both sides work. And then from a data perspective, I mean, all of this essentially is a data asset. Like when you bring together buyers and suppliers, when you see different how pricing is fluctuating, how continuity is fluctuating, how different suppliers are performing, uh, you're building a proprietary data set that can be leveraged in a lot of different ways in a really cool way. So what we're always trying to think about is, yes, we want to deliver value to the uh, our decision makers, to the buyers or the end user and supplier side. But then how do we think about this whole industry differently based off the, the data we're aggregating to kind of automate more of what they didn't even know could be automated, drive more insights, what they didn't even think about ahead of the time. And I think if we're thinking about fair market five, six years down the road, very much around autonomous sourcing. So like automating a lot of the sourcing process, adding intelligence, autonomous selling as well on the other side of the marketplace, but doing it in a way that's fueled by this growing data asset, which um, we don't see anyone doing today. So that's what gets us excited about kind of the long-term like future public company that's fair market. Very, very cool. So once someone joins fair market, like what's it like working there? What's the culture like? Uh, it's something we talk about a lot. Um, we, it, it, and it fluctuates and I think it should change over time. Um, one of the things that we do from our board down is we start every meeting with our core values in North Star. Uh, every single meeting, everyone in the company can say it. I challenge our board members. I put them on the spot to make sure they can say our core values in North Star, which I, I mean, you got to have some fun with it as well. Uh, but the, if we're thinking about like, what is our culture? Like that's the foundation. Be super positive, be an A plus player, be fair and be team customer. So be super positive is like, it's a general, like a genuine disposition to positive disposition to anything like fair market. Doesn't mean you have to have a great day every day. Cause that's not going to happen. Like the real world happens, personal things happen, things happen to the company. But if our like default position is great, like we know this is going to be a hard journey. Like we know we're attacking a space that as like a newcomer that we have to kind of go and bang down doors then if something goes wrong or if something doesn't go our way, let's not be negative about it or point fingers. Like let's pick each other up and say, okay, great opportunity to learn. And kind of with that mentality at the core and then hiring just like really, really strong A plus players, it breeds a culture where in our view, um, you can go after really hard challenges. You can fail a lot. And it's not like you get like talked down to, or there's no one like, like beats their chest out and kind of like yells if something goes wrong. It's like, great. Like once again, we knew this was going to happen. So let's just learn from it and get better as a team. So as a first time founder, what it, what has been kind of like the key lessons that you've learned around scaling a company? Um, I'd say number one, consistency over time pays off <clears throat> where, and, and that's across multiple levels, consistency to the company to show that you, and as a whole executive team, like we mean what we say um, and that it's not. Like I love the quote, um, an overnight success, it takes seven years of ups and downs to create an overnight success. And I think that couldn't be more true. Like there's going to be ups and downs, but if you stay true to just kind of having everyone continue rowing in the same direction, the, the amount of mass that builds over time is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, it's all about the team in terms of getting trailblazers, because we found out that if you try to hire, if you try to hire people sometimes that are maybe not stage appropriate, that maybe don't have the same mentality of you do have to trailblaze every aspect of every role uh, and challenge how we're doing it. There's no like inflection point that says, hey, we have to change this. Of like, hey, we know when we hit this ARR or this growth or this net retention, this is when we need to, to shift how we're thinking. 
it kind of happens organically. So if you don't have people that are looking to challenge the status quo at all times, then I could see very easily how you become a legacy company, which isn't a bad thing. You'll survive as a company, but you're not going to change an industry. Um, I'd say those are the two main things. And then I'd say just like uh, being human about making decisions and communication. Uh, there's a lot of tough decisions that everyone has to make. Um, and there's a lot of different like influences in terms of what you should do, when you should do it, how you should do it. Like there's a lot, just a lot of different like outside voices that you can listen to. And I think one thing that people respect and really appreciate is just being a human and and, and just like being wildly transparent and, and telling it how it is. And we get that, like I personally get that feedback from, um, in a good way, from like, we have two board members, independent board members, Lou Shipley, who's a multi-time CEO. He's helped kind of coach me up on that. Stephen Gregorio, multi-time CFO, even our board members, they're just like, they're not, they're very like, um, they're very humble. And they kind of instill that, like, if we have that, it's like Jeff Richards from GGV and Thomas Crane from Insight. If we have that mentality and we just kind of like trust our, our company and we explain the why behind everything we're doing, then nine times out of 10, it motivates people and fires people up, even if it's news they don't want to hear. Well, and I thought that was interesting too, like your board of directors. So the non-investor board of directors, how'd you go about selecting Lou and Steven to, to be a member of the board of directors? Okay. So I'll give you a quick story. Um, I was at, I met Lou because uh, my wife was at Turbonomic. I went to go to uh, the founder, Shmuel, awesome guy. His pool party is a summer party at his house. It was a small company at the time. Um, I, they were trying to recruit me to EMC at the time. And uh, at the end of the night, I, w I wasn't going to leave. And so I met Lou. I sat next to Lou at dinner. We chatted all night. And then um, I was walking out and the Shmuel walked me, walked, was walking me by the pool. It's like, hey, I'll walk you out. And uh, for fun, it was like a party. Everyone was dressed up with sport coats and everything like that. He looks over and goes, hey, Kev. And he pushes me in the pool. So <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a sport coat, like everything. So I'm thinking like, what? My wife had just started working there. She was EA to Lou, who was CEO at the time. So I jump out of the pool. I'm like, what am I going to do right now? I was like, my phone is ruined. Like my jacket, I'm so, I have a four hour drive home back to, cause it was in New York, back to Boston. So I, I, uh, so ended up being like, uh, Hey, like very the exact words I use, but essentially like, thanks for having me. I'm going to head out now. Uh, and after that, um, I think Lou pinged me. It was just like, Hey, like great to meet you. So then when I started this, so when I started the company, uh, I did with Tarek and Victor, um, I pinged Lou. I was like, Hey, we're probably a little early, like respect everything you've done. We'd love to meet up when it makes sense. He said, Hey, why don't you swing by the office? He was the CEO of Black Duck at the time. They did, they sold uh, the last couple of years, very good exit. Um, and when I started telling him about the idea, he immediately got it. Just like it clicked immediately. It does for some people. Like I understand the problem. I think this is a massive opportunity. He pulled in the CFO at the time, Stephen Gregorio, uh, and they both just ran at it. So that's where we worked with them for about a year. And then when we set up our seed round, we said, love to have you two on. Um, so that's how we met them. Very, very cool story. I love that. Now, I also learned that you have an executive coach. So what what are the, like, I don't know if that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs think about. So what's the value that you get from that? Um, so for anyone listening that is an entrepreneur, I'd recommend everyone has an exec coach. We do it uh, for a lot of our leadership team, pretty much VP and C-suite. They all have, we have two different, three different executive coaches we work with as a company. Um, we just, can we, we, we tried to make the commitment to knowing that we're first time founders. That's when we started doing it. So it, it was very much like, you don't know what you don't know. 
we all need to develop in order to earn our seats in this role, um, where I don't think at any point it's a given that I should be the CEO because I was one of the co-founders of the company. Like that, that logic doesn't make sense. Like it should be whoever is the best person to run the company that's best for our customers and best for our shareholders and employees. So I know I need to keep up leveling myself in order to keep earning the seat every year. Same thing goes for every one of our employees. So for us, we decide, you know what, let's just start working with someone to see how it is. So we started working with one person. Uh, it was myself, Tark, and Victor, so the three co-founders. <clears throat> really good experience. We expanded it out to the rest of our executive team. Uh, we recently went to a new executive coach. We have both running in parallel. Uh, we work with one. Some of the VPs work with another one. And it, it's, it makes you think. And it makes you really try to understand like, okay, why do you react different ways in different situations? How are you making sure you're uh, best allocating your time in the right areas? How is your communication coming across? Because as you, you grow the company, you might say something thinking it got received in one way when in reality it got received in 15 different ways that you could have caught. And then for a very specific example, um, via our executive coach two weeks ago, we all went to Austin, Texas. Awesome time. Spent a couple of years there at EMC. Uh, blast. Um, but essentially what we did is we had the whole company take HBDI uh, assessments. So HBDI is assesses like how you think and react to different situations. Um, so you have, there's like four different quadrants of HBDI thinkers. And we did this whole exercise during the offsite where we helped identify what different styles do people have? What does it mean if you're a different style than someone else? How do you, where is there going to be natural tension? Where are you going to work well together? Where are you going to compliment? Because then that starts to help you understand Okay, if you aren't aligning with someone, why is that? And it's not that you should be combating them. You should be curious to understand why do they have the viewpoint they have because they're a smart person. So that kind of way of kind of like taking a step back from the day-to-day -day and really understanding like, all right, how do we best work together as a team, either within your department or different departments? I think from a culture perspective, that's the difference of being transactional. Hey, I need to like on Zoom all the time, on Slack all the time versus stop and say, okay, this is a person. They have their viewpoints for a reason. Let's figure out how we get to the best outcome, knowing that we both do have different viewpoints, which is great. That's diversity. That's the whole like be fair mentality that we have as a company. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Ooh, I know you prepped me on this question, actually. Um, so uh, a little different than probably most people. So um, the first one was uh, I love Peloton. <clears throat> so my Peloton app, like that's a huge one because that that keeps me leveled. Um like after work, uh, I typically do my, my workouts. That's a good way to like decompress after the day. Um, I do like a generic one. I do like Slack. Now, nah, just because I can see it on my phone, I can see like updates across the board, what's happening. I know where to dive in. So I love that one. Final one, a little different. Uh, we have two young ones. So we have a two-year-old and a six-month-old. Love them both, Callie and Collins. Uh, the Snoo app. So if you don't, you don't have kids, you're not familiar. The Snoo is the um, it, it, like the cradle that rocks that you put them in. It's like a bassinet, the babies. And it, mm -hmm. it kind of like hushes them to sleep. The Snoo oh. app, I can control like how well she sleeps or not. So like that's, wow. that's game changing. That is game changing. That didn't exist when my kids were little. Like my kids oh, are no. it, it, like, I got an 18 and a 16 year old. So that didn't exist. I wish it did. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's a crazy idea that it just like rocks them throughout the whole night. But once again, like sleep is important. So uh, I don't get a ton of it. So if I can optimize sleep, that's good. That's so good. All right, podcast or book recommendation? Um, I used to always say the hard thing about hard things. Uh, ben Horowitz, I think that's a great one uh, for anyone such a good starting book. a company. It's just like spot on. There's no, there's no one correct path. 
What's great about that book too is the com- competing company is a Boston-based company called Blade Logic that he was competing against the whole time, which is hysterical. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, overall. I've read the book multiple times. Um, recommended through Lou actually, who wrote it. He's like, this book is incredible. Um, and then the other one, um, uh, Amp It Up by Frank Slootman, uh, CEO oh, of Snowflake, okay. former CEO of uh, ServiceNow and Data Domain. Um, just like wartime book uh, yeah. of like always having that mentality of having super high expectations, super high urgency. Uh, so we, we've adopted the mentality at Fair Market of positive urgency. We don't want people to be stressed, uh, but at the same time, you need to have crazy urgency at all times if you're going to disrupt the space. So positive urgency is a big thing that we're uh, we're focusing on. Very cool. I haven't, uh, like, I think I've heard of that book, but I, I haven't had it recommended. So I'm going to have to add that to my audible queue. I'm all about the audiobooks. books. Yeah, <laughs> so, all right. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? You're, you got two little ones, so I could probably answer this one for you. <laughs> playground. Uh, just like that, like after work, like, uh, my, my daughter always be like playground, playground, the, the six month old doesn't do much. So, so yeah. but the two year old loves to like run around. So I'm like running around the playground with her. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that, that's honestly like the best part of my day. Very cool. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great work that you and the team at Fair Market are up to. And of course, all the great advice. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.